All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for another day to worship you through the study of your word. For your Son, our Lord and Savior, is the word, the very Logos from eternity past, the bread of life, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the very manifestation of grace and truth and love, a love that hung on a cross 2,000 years ago. We pray, Father, that our hearts recognize the fullness of His good work and that we live in the gospel reality that He set us free to live in. For as your blessed apostle Paul said, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We pray that those hearing this message be encouraged, never discouraged, for even the challenging lessons are goodness in your eyes, in the eyes of our dad. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 46. I gave you a sort of a precursor, a pre, or alluded to um, the nature of this morning's message, which is going to be a continuation on prosperity. So with that said, why waste any time? Why is everybody laughing? Right? What does that conjure up? Wealth. Profound wealth. We are so very quote-unquote prosperous in this country, aren't we? Is this true wealth, though? I mean, is this how God intends to bless us out? Will large bank accounts and expensive things ever be a concern in heaven? How about personal possessions and having the most or the so-called best of them? Will those even be a concern in heaven? Are your so-called quote, Christian friends and co-workers truly on the right track? Or are they trudging right alongside the unbelievers who labor for Satan and don't even know it? I mean, what's the truth here? So this is the question, the fundamental question that we've been contemplating this past week. What is wealth? And how does one define prosperity? These are important questions, folks. We cannot make that mistake that so many make, especially in this country, this so-called prosperous country, by adopting the definition that we receive from a variety of media channels, whether it's television or radio or newspapers, or now the internet. I mean, what is wealth? 
and how does one define prosperity? I suppose if we live in a, quote, prosperous nation, and the Word of God says that He will prosper us. So we have this sort of conjoining of definitions. We live in a so-called, quote, prosperous nation. And the Word of God says, He promises us that He will prosper His children. Shouldn't then every Christian take the time to see if their definition of prosperity matches up with God's? I mean, if they don't, aren't they running the risk of thinking one thing but living another? Here's an analogy for you to get you situated. A man goes to the pet store and buys a new parakeet, a blue one. He lives alone, so he figures a little company will be nice to have. Over the years, he and his parakeet, Smitty, (laughs) you don't even know what happens to Smitty yet. This could be a sad story. So over the years, he and his parakeet, Smitty, develop a unique bond with each other. The man feeds and cleans, and the bird sings. It's a symbiotic relationship that both are happy to be a part of. Everywhere he goes for home decorations, he says to the assistants, I have a blue parakeet in my living room, and I'd like the decor in there to draw off of his presence. Please give me some pretty blue decorations to accent my bird's feathers. The man is satisfied with his home, and he finds it very comfortable and relaxing. He does find it odd, though, that every time he invites a friend over to the house, they don't seem to agree with his taste in decor. Whatever he says to himself, you know, there's just no accounting for taste. One day, Smitty the parakeet dies. Told you. Sad story. Smitty dies. The man is so distraught at the fact that he won't be greeted by his beautiful blue parakeet each day after work. Oh, how he loved everything about that bird. So he takes a picture of Smitty down to the pet store and says, Hi, John. Bad news, Smitty died. The pet shop owner who sold the bird to this man a few years back frowned. I loved my Smitty, and since I have decorated my entire living room in blue, I'd like to buy another blue parakeet. And John, the owner, quizzically looks at the man and says, I sold you a yellow parakeet, my friend. The man discovers in that moment that he is colorblind which explains his guests' so-called bad taste all these years. It was actually his issue, not theirs. The moral of the story, when it comes to wealth and prosperity, maybe you're colorblind. 
Maybe God's trying to open your eyes to the truth. Even if every possible indicator, every sense of awareness, even your scale of values agrees with the world's definition of wealth. Let me repeat that. Maybe God's trying to open your eyes to the truth, even if every possible indicator, every sense of awareness, even your scale of values agrees with the world's definition of wealth. So our job this morning, as it's been this past week, is discovering what the Word of God has to say about wealth. Discovering wealth. Maybe, just maybe, God's telling you that your fleshly senses have been wrong all this time. Maybe your so-called Christian friends are wrong, too. Maybe your scale of values is off. And as a result, your, quote, life goals are off, too. Maybe that's what he's trying to tell this congregation in this country, this so-called prosperous country. Maybe we've been sold a box of lies. Maybe we've joined or adopted definitions that we haven't or we shouldn't have. I know. What, what preacher hasn't taught this age-old lesson, right? I mean, isn't that what I'm supposed to be teaching from behind the pulpit? That God's wealth is invisible and such, and, you know, that pie in the sky, eternal life, eternal this and that spiel, you know, and I'm being sarcastic. The one that you glaze over when you hear it. The question is, are you actually listening? Have you actually taken the Spirit's advice to heart? Have you stopped what you're doing and poked your head up out of the stampede of dumb sheep? Have you? That's what he's been asking us to do, right? Just stop for a moment. What say you of wealth and prosperity? Or are you just writing these words off, assuming that you're not, quote, colorblind, even possibly a little? Let me ask you this question and concentrate Really concentrate from them because this is important. We'll get to some scripture in a moment. Discovering colorblindness. If you were colorblind for real, physically, how would you ever realize it unless someone came along and told you that you were? If you were really colorblind, how would you ever know? If you lived on an island where everyone was colorblind, you would never know. So someone actually has to tell you that you're colorblind. Amen? What do you think the Spirit's doing? What do you think He's doing right now? What do you think He's been doing this past week? And the only reason He ever teaches lessons is because you all need it. He ordained this lesson from eternity past. So if you're sitting here this morning... You need to hear this lesson. And he knows something is awry in your souls. So don't brush it off. 
So again, if you were colorblind for real, how would you ever realize it unless someone came along and told you that you were? What if the world you lived in was filled with other colorblind people? And then along comes the Lord God, the author of color. And he says to you, that color you love so much isn't actually blue, it's yellow. I'd love to teach you what true colors are, though. A little more on discovering wealth. For citizens of the United States, even believers, the shock of realizing that their entire scale of values has been off would be just as shocking as finding out they've been colorblind their whole lives. And they're just figuring it out now. For some of you, that's what's going on. For some of you, you haven't really questioned the definition, the very definition of prosperity in your souls. What does it mean to prosper? Everyone knows all the right things to say. Well, I'm in church. I say, it's all about eternally weighted things. (laughs) When I'm out there, it's about my car or my home or my job or my promotion. It's all about that wealth. Not that these things can't coexist. We know David, Solomon. But what did these guys have? Supreme wisdom. They knew what true wealth was. All of you right now have to accept the fact that your scale of values is most likely skewed. So you need to, right now, challenge yourselves using the Word of God not your senses, to assess the situation. I was thinking about this way, and you should know that, you know, again, these lessons, I shouldn't have to say this, but these lessons go through this vessel first. So I'm not preaching down to you, I'm teaching you. Consider your conversations with God, or others even. Do you pray for prosperity or for the wisdom to understand it? Do you pray for so-called, quote, needs that are actually wants? Do you pray for the ability to give more than to receive? What are your objectives in life, your end goals, Are they personal achievements or for Christ's sake in you? What are your end goals, honestly? Why are you even here this morning? Why'd you come here this morning? Why? To go like this? Uh I went to church. Now it's back to the world after this. Here's a big one. Whose approval are you seeking? Whose approval are you seeking? When you arrive at your next so-called milestone in life, looking back, whose power will you be able to point to? Whose power were you able or will you be able to point to? Will you fire off Bible verses like, oh, well, Philippians 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's how I got all my prosperity. Jesus wants me to be a rich jackass. So will you fire off Bible verses like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, as you receive glory unto yourself? In other words, whose currency are you rich in? What purchases have you made with it? Whose currency? Creature credit or grace? I've taught you this, right? There's two, there's two entirely different economies. Satan's economy, God's economy. Satan's economy is all about creature credit. God's economy is all about grace. Which currency do you have? Pocket fills or pocket full of? Creature credit or grace? And which one are you making your purchases with? Creature credit, glory unto you, or grace, glory unto God? Which one are you dabbling with? Are you commingling your funds? These are the deep questions that you mustn't blow off anymore, my friends. Probably the easiest, quickest litmus test you can take is to ask yourself and say this to yourself. And when I use the term purchase, I'm not talking about only money. Money is the easiest one to relate to because we all deal with it. It's common. But you have the ability to purchase things, not only with your finances, but also your time, right? Your energy, even your talents. So ask yourself this question. Will this purchase, whether you're spending time, talent, treasure, will this purchase bring glory to God in heaven or not? The next time you go to purchase something, will this purchase bring glory to God in heaven or not? A corollary question is, will what I'm buying be something I get to keep in heaven for all of eternity? Will what I'm buying be something I get to keep in heaven for all of eternity? We know that in Revelation, Jesus Christ the Lord says, buy from me gold refined by fire. He's not on the street and he's not at the pawn shop selling gold, is he? By the ounce. No. Then what is he talking about? He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about the Word of God. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might see. Right now you're purchasing truth. You're here. You put some time aside, right? You could have been done in something else, which most of the world seems to be doing on Sunday mornings now. But right now, you're, you are doing that thing. You are purchasing. You are buying from Him gold refined by fire. You are receiving the word of truth. Compliments of the Spirit. But can you say that about your other purchases? Are you obtaining wealth that's holy or unholy? So if the answer to both of these questions is yes, then God is pleased. However, if it's no, then you know why you are sitting here on a lovely Sunday morning. Your prosperity is wood, hay, and straw. But don't be condemned 
folks. Because there's no time to waste. Just realize that you've been colorblind. And God is trying to deliver you. Remember, our overarching theme has been God saves and sanctifies. This is still a transitional period between salvation perspectives, the three tenses we discovered together, and where we're going, sanctification perspectives, the three phases. We haven't got there yet. This is a transitional period. And I guess he's just taking out a few roadblocks in your souls. He's just sort of reaching in and saying, get rid of that, get rid of this. And in our country, for obvious reasons, as most of us will agree, prosperity is a huge stumbling block. And it will remain as such in our souls unless we get the proper definition to squeeze out, to push out the ugly one. The one, you know, that most of us have been handed as children. So now you know why you're sitting here, but don't be condemned. Just realize that you, you've been colorblind. So discovering wealth, God saves and sanctifies. Experientially, He's saving you from the slave market of sin, which is bondage, and sanctifying you to the slave market of righteousness, which is freedom. These are all freedom principles. These are freedom activities, folks. To discover that your definition of wealth and prosperity has been skewed is a very good thing. The only way you will ever fully realize this freedom is if you first realize that you were born colorblind and that this world has been lying to you. Go to Matthew 17.20. Probably the longest stretch on a Sunday morning before any scripture, but he wanted to precondition your souls that way to get you thinking rightly, to challenge you, to get some of you back on your heels thinking rightly so that you can receive truth, because truth is what sets us free. Matthew 17, 20. Again, the only way you will ever fully realize this freedom is if you first realize that you were born colorblind and that this world has been lying to you. Matthew 17, 20. And he said to them, this is Jesus, of course, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. Up here on the board. On that note, true faith. This is what Jesus was getting at. True faith always implies complete surrender to God, His will, his precepts, his commands, and even his scale of values. Do you have faith, in other words, in what God says is true prosperity? Or do you continue to desire even, from the flesh of course, the prosperity of the world? Is the carrot that you're chasing the prosperity of the world? Or is what you're after, what you're pursuing with true faith, his grace? And glory to Him. Jesus said, Jesus, if you just had a little faith, this mountain would move. Most people listening to my voice right now have to accept the simple fact, let's face it, all of us have been 
bound to worldly prosperity. Is anybody here going to deny that? No, that's ridiculousness. Now, some have a bigger problem than others, granted. But just growing up in this country, we're predisposed to it. True faith always implies complete surrender to God, His will, His precepts, His commands, even His scale of values. Both the source and the object of faith is God. Luke one thirty seven says, For nothing will be impossible with God. You want to be sanctified? You want to be set free from the bondage of your own definition of prosperity? The anxiety that comes with chasing a carrot for your entire life and never ever finding that happiness, that contentment, that peace that God promises nonetheless. But the, those promises come as the result of learning the Word of God, of purchasing gold refined by fire, getting this kind of wisdom that's coming from this pulpit this morning. Then it's true, nothing's impossible with Him. He will sanctify you. He will change your mind about prosperity. But you have to be humble. Now, when you hear this, for nothing will be impossible with God, what do you actually hear? Most people like that. They're like, yeah, God's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. When you hear, for nothing will be impossible with God, what do you actually hear? How does such a statement pique your interests? Do you hear with your opportunistic flesh that someday soon, if you persist in going to church, that God will give you that expensive toy? Are you just going to be a good little doobie and He's going to bless you out, in other words? This is still all about you? Or do you hear echoes of Christ's heart in Paul? as he penned the following. Go to Ephesians 3.14. Ephesians 3.14. What do you hear? For nothing's impossible with God. Is that an opportunity for the flesh, in other words, to exploit God's grace? Is that the attempt in you? Have you somehow, in your own soul, put God on a treadmill? Or do you echo what Paul says here? Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In other words, who's getting the glory? 
When you prosper with your current definition, who's getting the glory? When you prosper, who's getting the glory? Because under God's definition of prosperity, He's supposed to get the glory. So if you factor in in any way, shape, or form in the end goal, then you have to step back and check. Because the world peddles, prosperity is for the individual. Get what's yours, right, before somebody else does. That was the parable of the, the fraternal twins I gave you on Thursday. Again, the question was, after hearing a verse like Luke one thirty-seven, which says, for nothing will be impossible with God, how do you respond? Well, I guess a good question to ask is, who's your God? Who's your God? At the end of what? John's great epistle, his first epistle, chapter 5, the, va- the last verse says, Children, guard yourselves from what? Idols. Well, maybe you're your biggest idol. Maybe the more prosperity you get, the greater the idol. All glory and honor go to you. So you think. That's the American way last time I checked. Isn't that the, I wrote a blog on that. Isn't that the American dream to have a house with a picket fence? Isn't that the quote-unquote American dream that the politicians peddle? Everybody deserves the American dream. Says who? Jesus said the the poor will always be with you. Says who? They're just trying to get votes. Hmm. All of it's geared to take your eyes off of Christ and to get you to adopt a different kind of prosperity. It's on a treadmill. It has nothing to do with grace. It has everything to do with the flesh and creature credit. So who's your God? Is God nothing more than a cheesy, second-rate suitor to you? Is that what you think? That you come to church and you get to listen how God pleads with you, please take my grace. Is that what you think about God? He's some second-rate suitor? Like, you know, like the idiots with the girl with the batting eyelashes? Got three of them lined up and they're all trying to buy more flowers than the next one? Which one of you is worthy of my hand? Do you think that's God? He's just some cheesy second-rate suitor to you? That's your God? Trying to give you stuff so that you pay attention to Him? For some people, that's really accurate. Maybe even some that are listening to my voice right now. I don't know. It's possible. So is God nothing more than a cheesy second-rate suitor to you? Do you think that his goal is to, quote, flirt with you by encouraging your obsession with worldly prosperity, whether it's money, toys, clothes, etc.? Is this your God? He flirts with you by taking you further down some rat race? Does Satan disguise himself as an angel of light? That's scripture. And so do his agents, by the way. Of course he does. So in other words, that suitor, the one that's giving you things from the world system, is it possible that it's not even God? It's actually from the, quote, angel of light, Satan himself. Is it possible? Yeah. Especially when there's a lot of prosperity thrown around, such as in a country like our own. So some of you have to sit back and really ponder this question. 
Is God nothing more than a cheesy second-rate suitor to you? Do you think that his goal is to, quote, flirt with you by encouraging your obsession with worldly prosperity, money, toys, clothes, etc.? And then just to ask a second question there, does Satan disguise himself as an angel of light? People, think of it this way, people derive their prosperity from their, quote, God. People show their gratitude to that same entity. Think about it. If you're your own God, who do you pat on the back when you get your new whatever? You. If you're grace-oriented, that's creature credit, that's that economy. If you're grace-oriented and you receive a blessing, who do you say thank you to? You get down on your knees, you say thanks to God. You see the difference? People derive their prosperity from their God. People show their gratitude then to that same entity. Therefore, another question, who receives your gratitude? Who receives your gratitude? And be honest. Based on how and when most Christians say thank you to God, one has to wonder which God they are actually thanking. A lot of people say, this is totally from God, when it's not. How could it be? Your little issue in your soul, your little personal religion, just got amplified. You feel better about yourself because the world esteems you greater. Who cares what the world has to say about whether you have or don't have something? Who cares? Well, you might care. As I've taught many times in the past, what other people think of you is none of your business. If you could just get that into your soul, I'll pay for the tattoo. You get it right here. Who receives your gratitude? Based on how and when most Christians say thank you to God, one has to wonder which God they are actually thanking. Here's another analogy. I don't know what's going on, but he's got me giving you a lot of analogies lately. A man works really hard, saves up, and buys a 1982 Chevy Corvette, pristine. By the way, if anybody's interested, this is my favorite year of Corvette. Just throwing it out there. If anyone wants to... <laughs> you know what I'm going to get, right? I'm going to get a matchbox. Here you go, Pastor. I'll play with it on the rug. There she is. Oh. So he cruises around town in it, and everyone's complimenting him. A couple of years later, the murmuring starts. Look at him. He must be going through his midlife crisis or something. You know how it degrades, right? Oh, that's awesome. That thing is awesome. He senses their negativity, pretends it doesn't bother him, biblically it shouldn't, but decides to paint his vet midnight blue with racing stripes. The townsfolk are all over it, flooding him with more compliments. The truth is, though, that he misses the original cherry red paint job. And he realizes that the only reason he painted his beloved car 
was due to the impact of others' opinions. He realizes also that the reason he even bought the car in the first place was for others to see it and praise him. So he sells the car, not because he doesn't love it, but because of what it actually meant to him. It was a perversion. He realized that the flashy, expensive purchase was actually laced with all sorts of evil. He realized that even though he had prayed to God for the extra hours and the ability to find his dream car, that the acquisition of it had come from the world. So, the moral of this story is this. Who gave you what? That's a good question for a lot of people to ask themselves right now. There are a lot of people that have a lot of things in this country. And those things own them. Remember I taught you that? The things that you own end up owning you. Those things actually own them. How can that possibly be from God then? If you have to work extra long hours to maintain the shine of your new Corvette, to the point, nothing wrong with a Corvette, nothing wrong with wealth. That's not what he's teaching right now. But if it comes at the degradation of your attention to the Lord, if you have to work extra hours so that you're too tired, that you start missing out on the grace that comes from the pulpit, let's say. Or you worked extra hard, now the blogs fall off the radar. Or the Bible stuff, whatever it is that you were doing before, maybe that you should have been doing all along. Who gave you what? You have to actually ask yourself. Who gave you what? And whose prosperity are you chasing? Ask yourself the next time you purchase something, do the reactions of others factor into your decision? That is the very first thing you should ask yourself whenever you're purchasing anything. And when I say purchase, remember, it's not just money, it's time too. I'm going to help this old lady across the street. Everybody see it? Who's that about? Do the reactions of others factor into your decision? If you could have a functionally equivalent item, less the name tag. Name tags, they almost make me nauseous, actually. I had a friend of mine that um, owned a uh, textile mill in Fall River. And he would make, you know, ski bib pants? Some of them are very expensive, right? He literally told me this. Now, he probably would get in trouble from the manufacturers. But he would create, he'd set out and make a lot of, I don't know, 5,000 of the exact same ski pants. And at the end of the week, he'd get a little box from each manufacturer. One from Sears, one from, I don't know, Macy's, and one from, like, Nordstrom's. Little boxes with tags. He would sew them on the different ones. Sears would sell them for 50 bucks, Macy's for 100, and Nordstrom's for 300. Same pants. 
He goes, they're the same pants. So what's the person from Nordstrom's with the little name tag paying for? What are they paying for? Be honest. Uh, do I have to say it? Do I really have to say it? <laughs> but if you were to ask the person that, that bought those pants from Nordstrom, they say, it's better quality. No, it's not. It's the same pair of pants. How much quality can go into a pair of jeans that they cost $500 or even $150? Now, some of you ladies are like, but they fit me so much better. <laughs> Those other ones make my butt flat and they're boxy and I want to look pretty. Whatever. You're, you're picking tomatoes, sweetie. Nobody cares. You're a hundred. Right? Sew some rhinestones in the back pockets. It'll be good. Right? Is that fair? Everybody's like, oh, it's making me uncomfortable. I don't like this at all. Everybody, everybody that has a members-only jacket. It just fell on the floor. After class, well, I don't know who that is. Members-only, remember that? People paid $70 back in the day for, like, a flimsy little thing. What is that about? It's about you and creature credit. So ask yourself, if you could have a functionally equivalent item, less the name tag or the, quote, look at me flash, would you purchase it? In other words, why does someone spend $300 on a, the same pair of pants? Because it has a tag or a sewn-in emblem? Why not purchase what you want rather than what the world wants? Now, oddly enough, and I think I say this with complete confidence, I believe God is okay with this. If you personally believe that the little tag is worth the extra $250 and that's what you want to spend your money on, it's all about that thing for you only and you're not trying to impress other people, you're not trying to bolster yourself, this kind of a thing, I think God's much better with that than you buying it with the rest of the world in view so that you can garner glory unto yourself. Does that make sense? And do us all a favor while you're contemplating the point on the board. Stop calling wants needs. I need it. No, you don't. You want it. Nobody needs, let's face it, nobody needs a Corvette. Maybe they need the other vet. Does everybody remember the, the vet? This is the, this is the poor man's vet. It's called the Chevy Chevette. But the nickname was the vet. I had a couple of friends in school, in, in uh, high school, that had Chevettes, and they're like, yeah, I got a vet. Dude, it's a Chevette. I mean, you can still get it in red. Just saying. But why are some of you laughing, seriously? I'm asking. Under the speed limit, the Chevette can functionally do, arguably much more so, everything the Corvette can do. Can a Corvette carry groceries? You might have to make three trips because <laughs> the trunk is like this big. You might get your little Grover lunchbox in there. Just saying. Scott. 
Most of you are probably saying, I wouldn't be caught dead in that thing, that jalopy. But while we all get a little chuckle out of this, let us ask ourselves why such jest is even acceptable among so-called like-minded Christians. Why do we all get such a hoot out of this? See, I tricked you, didn't I? I got you all laughing. Now everybody's like... Why is it even acceptable? Why do we consider it acceptable to openly bellow out laughter at that car? When, in all reality, it has more functional use than a Corvette does. And it's still a vet. Think of it this way. How like-minded are we, really? You know... There are folks in this world, like a friend of mine on Facebook, who I've never met, from Cambodia, he's a minister, who would be ecstatic to own motorized transportation like that. Let me read to you something. This was a post on his Facebook page this past week, and I'm just going to read what he wrote, because English isn't his first language. But this is what he wrote, and if I read it slow enough, you'll get what he's saying. When I saw the pass make my heart so break full of drop tear I with my lovely children. Because we faith to God Trust God with cry of prayer. His ways so good for us. He always make good ways for our living with hope and joy in the Lord. That's what's above that photo, by the way. And we're all laughing about a Chevette. And look at that. That's what he's dealing with. And then listen to the gratitude in his voice. I would never be caught dead driving a Chevette. And here's this guy inundated in muck and what could possibly be other things like sewage. I don't know what backfills in a rainstorm in that area. But I know it's not pretty. He don't have any car as far as I know. And he's out there busting his hump for the Lord. And he's grateful to be able to do it, to be alive. And here we are, laughing as pompous U.S. citizens. I wouldn't drive that car if I was dead. You know what I mean. I wouldn't wear those Wrangler jeans or tough skins. Remember tough skins? Look, this isn't a Sally Struthers commercial my dear congregation of spoiled Americans. This is true life. This is not the facade that has been cast over your eyes since being born in this country and that awful sense of personal entitlement jammed into your souls. This is reality. The U.S., just by the way, 
and I've seen it firsthand between my travels in the U.S. Air Force and in industry, going to third world countries and such. The U.S. is not an accurate representation of the world. Not even close. It's not, honestly, it's not even close. Are we the only Christians? Some might act like it. We are the client nation to the world. False doctrine. Garbage. Where'd that come from? A guy. An elitist. How can we claim to be the most positive country on the planet when we're laughing at a Chevette and he's praying prayers like that on the other side of the planet? Hello? Hello? Maybe this little prosperity thing has been a stumbling block all along. Maybe, just maybe, you're not quite as, quote, special as you think you are. Maybe that was all the flesh chewing on elitism. Do I love my country? Yep, served her. Four years, thank you very much. Son served her. Do I love my country? Of course. But let's just call a spade a spade. Let's be honest with ourselves. God's not interested in your brand name clothes or your expensive beer or wine or what your neighbors think of any of it. He's really not. There's going to be a tap of Guinness in heaven. Darn it. Right? There's going to be Jordache jeans. Hey, listen. Don't knock it. Some people still wear them. They're stretchy fabric. Nice and comfortable. They get that little thing in the back pocket. Not that I know. So I'm told. God's not interested in your brand names. What the heck is a brand name anyways but a little sewn-on thing? Honest to God, let's be honest, right? Let's be honest. God's not interested in how that differentiates you from your peers in the world system under the currency of creature credit. Not interested. Ask yourselves, are you wealthy or poor? Are you? This, my friends, is an all-out reality check. To the degree that you put any stock in what others think, to that degree you are poor. You know why? Because the return on investment is awful. Eventually those people that are saying, you the man, you the lady, are going to turn their backs on you. As soon as the trend is over. As soon as that style is gone, out of style. That's why I hold on to all my clothes from the 80s. It's coming back, baby. It's coming back. Now it's just a weight issue. To the degree that you put any stock in what others think, to that degree you are poor. That's true. If you think this is comical or something to be laughed off, then you are broke already. Honestly, it's fun to have a laugh. I'm doing it on purpose to keep you lighthearted because these are heavy things. And most of us, okay, I'm going to say it, and you can take issue with it, all of us, 
are guilty to some degree or another of this very problem. Someone's, <laughs> someone just threw a toy off the wall. Probably one they didn't need. That's the baby going, I don't need this. <laughs> See, mommy, you're, you're, you're training me up. I'm entitled. I only need one thing to keep me occupied. To the degree that you put stock in what others think, to that degree you are poor. That's what a name tag does. That's what a, the extra $250 on those ski pants was. How much stock do you put in what others think? That's the delta, is it not? Literally. That's the cause for the delta. It's the only cause for the delta if all other things are held consistent. So don't try to worm out of it either. Seen a few purses go on the floor. That's not a Louis Vuitton. It's a knockoff. It's a knockoff. I didn't pay $800 for this $3 bag. Right? Kids buying $300 pairs of sneakers. For what? You're not Michael Jordan. You can't jump as high as him. You probably never will. So why don't we just get real? How about we get you some Keds? <laughs> huh? Bust out a move with those. We can laugh because it's ridiculous, isn't it? The, the stuff that we let fly in our own souls, the stuff that we let fly in our own households, even in churches, is grotesque. Is grotesque. Think of my buddy in Cambodia. Where does he hold church? Probably beside a fly-infested, a mosquito-infested, malaria-infested puddle. Why do we got to have all this? You're not entitled. Some of you think you are, though. you think any of this is comical or something to be laughed off, then you are broke already. Trust me, I'm filled with the Spirit right now. Here's what we discovered on Thursday regarding our Lord's thoughts about prosperity and wealth. I'll give you the Amplified this time around, Isaiah 55.1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy grain and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Simply accept it as a gift from God. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, or your earnings for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight in abundance. Who's the bread of life? Who's the word of God? What is the word of God? What are you chewing on right now? What are you dining on right now? The word of God. That's your sustenance. That's how you eat well. That's how you stay healthy. That's true wealth. Those, those are the things that you take with you. And of course, he says in verse 8, Amplified, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That means your definition of prosperity stinks. Throw it out. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Your definition of wealth stinks. Throw it out. I'm just about out of time. And we didn't actually get to the lesson part. 
I'm going to press on a little bit, okay? A little bit further. All you coffee drinkers. All of that was to precondition you for this principle. Remember, we've been on a sidebar now for a few lessons. Up here on the board, it was about halfway back to where we began a couple of weeks in our departure from the perspectives, salvation and sanctification perspectives. He said, by grace you were predestined to suffer. We studied that out in great detail. But then he gave us the other side which is what we've been on now, by grace you've also been predestined to prosper. But here's what he's been teaching us the last few lessons. Don't just say, my prosperity, I've been predestined for a red shiny Corvette so I can cruise around town and with all the ladies looking at me. Right? It's ain't about you. So you better get the term prosper down right in your soul. You better get that definition from the Word of God. So by grace you are predestined to prosper for Christ's sake. Only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. We've looked at all these scriptures except the 1 Timothy 6 reference. We'll get back to that later on. Proverbs 16, 11. John 4, 36 to 38, Romans 6, 20 to 22, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 21, Revelation 3, 18 to 21. The Spirit's been trying to impart wisdom. That's what he's been doing. He's using basically every antic even known to a vessel such as myself to get you to listen, to open you up. That's what laughter does sometimes, by the way. It opens you up. It relaxes you. So that there's not that barrier in front of you. Nope. Don't want to hear this lesson. La la la. Start thinking about what tomorrow's work. Don't want to hear this one. I don't even like that bald guy. He's really getting on my nerves right now. Go to Proverbs eight seventeen. All he's trying to do, he's trying to, he's trying to give you wisdom. This, this is the spirit who helps save and sanctify us. I mean, He is God, but in His ministry proper, this is what He's doing. He is our great helper. He's the one that Jesus promised to leave behind so that we could receive the very sustenance of life, so that we don't spit it out like a brat. I don't like broccoli. I don't like manna from heaven. The Spirit helps us to receive this grace. Proverbs 8.17, I, wisdom, is in view, speaking first person. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. You want to know about what true prosperity is? Keep doing what you're doing right now. Wisdom promises you will find her. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Satan hates that. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be, remember. 
it was from this passage that we derived the following up here on the board relative to divine prosperity, not that garbage the world peddles. Wisdom is among the greatest forms of prosperity. And I said this before, and I alluded to Solomon and David, who were very wealthy. It's not whether or not you have these things, it's what you think about these things. I've described them as first order and second order blessings, right? It's not what the thing is, it's what do you think of that thing? Is it a utility? Is it an instrument of righteousness in your life that you can bring glory to God with? Why did he call you to a rich, wealthy nation? So that you could be a spoiled brat and gather unto yourself? I think not. I don't think so. So wisdom is among the greatest forms of prosperity. Her fruit is better than gold. We just saw that in Proverbs 8, 19. Any other form of prosperity in the absence of divine wisdom is fruitless. If you've got all the stuff, there's a lot of people, a lot of unbelievers even, that have a lot of stuff in this country. But they don't have any real wisdom. So they have a lot of stuff and they're bearing zero fruit. So for us, God smashes any notion of prosperity that isn't from Him. And on Thursday I did, I tried to drive this home a little bit more with that parable about the fraternal twins. Each one of their own ideas, or with their own ideas about prosperity, the little boy rushed out to grab unto himself so that he could secure for himself what he thought was best. It was all about him. We might relate his activities with self-sanctification up here in the board. False prosperity. Self-sanctifies, cling to false end goals, and adhere to the maxim, you know, the ends justifies the means. In other words, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get mine. And since God wants me to be happy, they get these weird, like, um, hack versions of Christianity these um, intermingled. They take all the little promises from God that they like and they institute them into their lives, but only as sort of punchlines, only as supporting documentation for their ridiculousness. God wants me to be happy, right? Doesn't the Bible say something like that? Well, this thing over here makes me happy. God loves me. I'll do whatever it takes to get my happiness what makes me happy is when other people think highly of me. So I'm going to do whatever it takes so that that happens because God loves me and he wants me to be happy. How many definitions are wrong in there? God knows how many. The whole thing is a perversion. He does want you to be happy, but under his terms. He wants you to be happy in the same way, if you're a believer, that you'll be happy for all of eternity. So there is such a thing as false prosperity, and those who have taken their own lives under their own control are the self-sanctifiers who cling to false end goals and adhere to the maxim, the ends justifies the means. Prosperity to self-sanctifiers appeals to the flesh. On the other hand, the little girl in the story took her time and pondered all the goodness in approaching the project righteously, we might relate her activities with godly sanctification. We'll call that true prosperity. The righteous cling to end goals 
given to them by God. They are not preoccupied with having to justify the means by which grace delivers them to prosperity. They enjoy the ride. They live by faith. Romans 1.17 Again, true prosperity. The righteous cling to end goals given to them by God. They are not preoccupied with having to justify the means by which grace, grace delivers them to prosperity. They enjoy the ride. They live by faith. Romans 1.17 Therefore, and I think I'm going to end Two principles, and I'll end. We must learn to learn first, which really, behind all of that, is humility. If you're not willing to learn, if you're just stuck in your ways, and you don't really want this brand, God's brand of freedom, then you're not open to learn in the first place. You're just going to go about your way, do whatever. We must learn to learn first. The things we build for ourselves are like houses awaiting their own destruction. Proverbs 14, 11 to 14. Compare Matthew 7, 26 to 27. God may be patient with us, but judgment is always carried out eventually. God hates false prosperity and self-sanctification. Proverbs 14, 12 reads, There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. In other words, our natural inclination about prosperity is not God's. We just saw that in Isaiah 55. So there's a way that seems right to us, but it actually leads us back to bondage. So the overarching theme of our lessons as of late has been this. God's scale of values is completely different than the world's. Proverbs 16.11 was... The scales are his. The bag is his concern. The bag of weights is his concern. The whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle. So if you're not functioning, if your prosperity isn't postured on his scales and weighed against his bag, then you need to listen to what the Spirit's been saying to the congregation. This is what this is all about. You need to get it right. You got two more minutes? Anybody dying? Anybody want to admit they're dying? <laughs> Look around you now. Not now, after church, better yet, this upcoming week. What do you see? Be careful you're not run over by it on the back roads of our beloved towns. It's called misery. When I was a young teenager, I used to help train greyhounds. And my boss would take me to the track behind the scenes to help load and unload the dogs, etc. And it always bothered me to watch those otherwise seemingly intelligent animals chase a rabbit they'd never catch. Didn't that ever bother anyone? It bothered the heck out of me. That's like a form of torture, right? Train them to chase this thing. And oh, by the way, that's one of the things that we trained them to do, was to be attracted to this rag. We call it the rabbit. And we would train them, but we'd never let them have it, because if they had it, they got spoiled. 
So it would train them to chase this thing, even reward them for the chase. Sound familiar? That's what we see in this world, folks. And it is exemplified in the northeast of the United States. Sound familiar? It's awful. I hope you listen to these kinds of lessons. I'm out of time. I've got another, I'm only like two-thirds of my, the way through my notes. We could stay. Just kidding. Everybody's like, no, no, it's good. I got to get back to my prosperity. Let's go. I got a sense of urgency. That was my next slide, by the way. Unrelenting urgency. Why are you so? Why? What's your problem? What are you miss a, a game? What are you so urgent about? You don't know how much I bet on the game. I got prosperity in tow here. I got to put my juju into it. Ooh. Let me show you a video, and then I'll, we'll close in prayer.
prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for reminding us of the uniqueness of our existence and that we each face battles every day that if overcome by grace, bring glory to you. Thank you for the opportunity to partake in this blessing called life and for the opportunity to preach the gospel to a world that seems to be accelerating away from it. Father, we pray for the strength and the guidance to persevere in the face of whatever adversity this world has in store for us and that when we overcome them, and we will, as you've promised us, that even the angels rejoice. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, that we do pray. Amen. Thank you.